everyone, uh, welcome to another podcast, Backstory Podcast at UC San Diego. My name is Akash Fedotia. Today, Ricardo and I are going to be talking to Jeff Weaver, who is an assistant professor at the University of Southern California. Jeff has a diverse research agenda, which I would say is unified by thought-provoking questions and innovative ways to use data. So yeah, welcome Jeff, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks, it's great to be here. Uh, so yeah, uh, I know you're a postdoc here, so how does it feel to visit San Diego? <laughs> it's great to be back. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat San Diego. And when I was a postdoc, I was actually living on campus as well, about 200 feet from here. And so it's great to see all the places that I would get to, not just during the day, the week, but also on the weekend, uh, the places I'd wander to around campus. So. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's talk about the paper you presented today. Uh, so the paper title is Polity Size and Local Government Performance Evidence from India. Uh, so three questions for you. So what was going on in the literature before your paper? How does What question does your paper aim to answer? And, you know, what do you find? Yeah, definitely. And so the, the broad question that we're interested in looking at in this paper is that there's been a pretty uh, big move towards decentralized forms of governance and uh, creation of elected local governments and allocation of responsibilities to them. Um, and so one aspect that seemed important here was design of these governments in terms of how do we allocate citizens into, into different polities. And so in particular, the thing we're going to be looking at, as you said, is the size of these polities in terms of how many people are there. Do we have a local government for every 50 people, every 500 people, every 5,000 people? It seems quite likely this would matter, but it's not totally clear how this will matter. And so in the existing literature, there's a lot of more theoretical work looking at this, trying and thinking about what are theoretical mechanisms that may uh, relate government size or the, the size of polities to, to outcomes, but there's much less in the way of empirical work. And so um, there's some really nice empirical work taking more of a difference in differences approach. So for example, looking at uh, if you split up districts or you split up uh, much larger units like municipalities, uh, what are the consequences of this? So looking at before the split, after the split, and seeing what the consequences of those are. Uh, in a few different countries, uh, Brazil and Indonesia in, in particular, um, our paper is doing something a little different, and we're going to be looking at much smaller units of government. So we're going to be looking at uh, Gram Panchayats in India, so uh, village councils uh, in the Indian context. And so I think there's going to be a few things that we're going to be able to do that, that other uh, papers weren't uh, quite able to do as well. Uh, we're going to be able to look at much more long-run outcomes than, than some other papers. I think there's also some advantages of our, our setting as well, where we're not just going to be looking at what's the effect of splitting up a, a district and so creating two smaller polities. We're going to be able to say much more about what are the consequences of creating a polity of one particular size or another particular size, which I think for policy, you know, policy. If you go to a policymaker and you say split up all of your all of your polities into smaller units, what they'll say is like, okay, well, how small, how big? And so I think our paper is able to address that a lot more uh, than some of the existing work. Yeah, no, it was really cool, and you're very engaging presentations today. So thanks a lot for that. So yeah, in terms of the backstory of it, you know, how did this idea come about? How did you get interested in this project? Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those things where it, my previous research was much more field based, but during COVID, that wasn't something that was going to be a possibility, and so. I basically had to kind of pivot a little bit. And so I was thinking about, okay, so what are some projects that I could do that I think might potentially be useful for policy? And so one of the things I was thinking about was, okay, we think that local governments are really important in India, but something that didn't seem like there was as much work was on design of these local governments. And so basically, one day I was just sitting down and thinking, okay, so how can we improve design of local governments? And so I basically wrote out a list of a bunch of things that I thought potentially could matter. And then I said, okay, which of these things on the list seems like something I might be able to look at empirically. And so uh, size was one of the ones that immediately popped out where, you know, particularly in the Indian context, there's often sort of rules that are governing why things are a particular way. And so I thought, huh, this seems like the sort of place where maybe there's going to be something like that. And so I started Googling around, looking for news articles, seeing like, can I see anything about how do they decide 
uh, how to divide up people into different GPs. And so in different, what I realized is in different states, there's slightly different ways of doing it. But I got very excited at one point because I found one state in which I saw, oh, they, they have a very, what looks like a very clear regression discontinuity approach where you're not allowed to have a, these local government units that are more than 7,000 people. It seems like there's going to be discontinuity here. And so I got excited. I said, let's go look at the data and see if I can, uh, if I can use this. And what I quickly realized is I couldn't use it because there was just not enough villages around that discontinuity. It was just at too high a level. But then after that, I said, you know what? I have all this data already for I have the census data for India. Why don't I just look in the data? And rather than trying to find news articles to find, is there a discontinuity? Why don't I just look at the data and see, is there a discontinuity? And so I looked at the data. And first, I just plotted it across all of India. And I saw there's this huge discontinuity at this one place. And I was like, oh, there's got to be some state that's doing something here. And so fortunately, it happened to be the most populous state in India that was following this, uh, this rule. And so I, I plotted it out by each of the different states. And so it basically, it was one of those things where, it, I, I mean, I basically stumbled upon it where, I mean, the idea was originally like, I, I had the research question in mind originally. I found another context in which I thought it could work based on reading news articles. Didn't work, but in the data, it showed me somewhere else. And then eventually I was able to find the laws that said, not just look in the data and say, oh, it's there, but find, oh, there's actually a law that says this is how it's supposed to work. And so that's that's how I stumbled upon this. Oh, that's, yeah. so, that's so intriguing. Uh, I'm very intrigued by this thing you said about, uh, so do you usually like do the thing about writing down like just like, ways you think, like the problems that might exist or the questions that might be out there? Like how do you, do you, is that a usual thing in your idea generation process? Yeah, so I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really important as a PhD student is a lot of the processes not about following one particular set of rules or routines, but figuring out what works for you. And something that I think is really important is actually experimentation, where all of us are different in terms of what makes us creative. And so something that I like to do is just try out different approaches to see different things that I think potentially could make me creative in coming up with research ideas. Because at least you know, in my experience, what I've seen is for some people, what works really well is going to the literature, finding ideas from that. For me, that's never worked. I've never found a single good idea from doing that. For other people, you know reading non-economics papers to see how do other people see the world, what are frameworks that other people have in mind in describing how the world works, do we see these in economics? Um, for me, that's something that's been more successful. And so I say the thing that, that works actually best for me is I read a lot of sociology and anthropology to try to get a sense of how the world works, where I think oftentimes their comparative advantage is having a very deep contextual knowledge, but on a very limited sample size. I think our comparative advantage is that we're much better at working with larger data sets. And so oftentimes there may be mechanisms or things like that that are revealed in in a sociological account or ethnographic account, uh, but it's just a very small sample size. And so we're able, I think, in economics to sort of build on that and test those things more rigorously. And so for me, that's actually oftentimes how I get these sorts of ideas. In practice, this was something new that I was trying out a new way of generating ideas where I said, okay, uh, you know, I mean, it's something I'd done before, but um, not made much progress on. Um, and so I'd say this is not a typical way I come up with ideas where normally it's I'm reading something and I see, oh, this seems like this would be interesting, or, oh, you know, this person says that. Is that actually really true? Do we have uh, more quantitative, large-scale evidence for that? Um, and so what I would say to, to grad students out there is I certainly don't have the formula because everyone is heterogeneous, and so you need to figure out for yourself what works for you. So strongly recommend trying experimentation, especially if you're in your second year or third year. Don't try banging your head on the wall doing what your advisor tells you to do. Like, try out different things. See what's worked for different people. Ask different people what works for them, and try out different approaches because we're all pretty different, I think, in what makes us creative. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's super useful. And you know, another sort of uh, way to test up for us to test out, which is to you know do the exercise of listing down questions before you look at the literature. Yeah, I mean, so one one thing I'd also say, apologies for for interrupting, but this is like the one piece of advice I give every single grad student: if you don't already do this, keep a research notebook in which you write down 
every single idea that comes to you. So it could be like an idea scrap, like you see this context and say, oh, this is interesting. I don't understand why this is happening. Or it could be a much more detailed research plan where you say, oh, I see that there's this discontinuity here. I think I could use this to address this, this, this question. This is this other data that I have that I could use. But basically just writing everything down because something that I kind of discovered from doing this is that one is just really helpful to have a list you can go back to at times when you're feeling kind of creatively dry and say, oh, here's some other things I could potentially look at. And other, like the discipline of writing down all of the ideas and you know thinking a little bit more carefully every time you come up with something that could be the, the spark of an idea, um, just the discipline of doing that makes you much better at doing it. Where if I look back at my, so I, I started, this is something I started doing when I was an undergraduate. And if I look back at those ideas, the first like 50 of those ideas, terrible, really bad, never worked on any of those. Um, but the, sort of the dis it's like going to the gym. It's like when you first go to the gym, you can't lift very much. And then as you get, I mean, not, I'm not saying that I can lift very much from a research perspective or from a gym perspective for that matter, but it's uh, it's just something you get better and better at over time. And the discipline of doing something like that, for me at least, has been very helpful. And I usually like to say that I don't think there's a general rule of what makes one successful as a researcher. You have to figure out what works for you. But this is something which I think is, is more generalizable across a broader set of people. Yeah, that's great advice. And yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. Uh, diving back deeper into the paper, yeah. so I know there's a noteworthy sort of co-author story here, so why don't you tell us more about how you found the co-author? Yes, yeah, so I don't know if it's it's noteworthy, maybe a little unusual. So uh, the way that uh, that my co-author, uh, Veda, and I started working together is uh, at NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, is that both of us had found the same discontinuity independently. We'd written complete papers, so both of us had you know 90-page drafts, um, but we never encountered each other's papers. So she was uh, in Europe at, at Zurich at that time, and I was in the U.S., and we just never had seen each other's work. And so um, we were both uh, you know, doing our thing, doing our research. Uh, and then one day there was a visit visiting professor uh, who was coming at USC to USC to give a talk. And so you know, we did our normal half hour meeting where we talk about different research ideas or different thing, projects that we're working on. And so we spent probably the first you know, like 26 minutes of the 30 minute meeting talking about his stuff. And then at the end he said, oh, so what sort of stuff are you working on? So I started talking about uh, this project and then there was maybe like 20 seconds left in the meeting. He said, you know, I think I saw a paper of someone working with that very same discontinuity. I can't remember what their name is, but I, I feel like I've seen someone else working in this, which of course set me off into panic. And, and he couldn't remember the name of the person. And so that of course set me into a little bit of a panic. And he was like, oh, I'll, just, I'll send you an email about it, you know, late, later today, like to, to tell you, because uh, I'm sure I can find it in my inbox somewhere. And so basically that whole day I was just sitting there sweating, being like, has someone already written this paper already? Um, and so finally he sent me the email and you know looked at the paper and it turned out we were actually working on kind of different questions so I, I was a little bit more interested in the governance angle uh, her work was you know using the same discontinuity but seeing how does that affect economic outcomes and, and migration um, but you know I reached out to her after that sent her my paper and said you know I think we're working on different enough stuff we don't have to you know talk about combining papers or whatever but you know I, I thought it'd be useful since given I've seen your paper you, you see my paper as well uh, and for that, we started talking and realized that it probably would make sense to, to put our papers uh, together. And I think it's actually been tremendously useful for both of us in terms of we were using slightly different data. data. Um, so some of us, like, we're each using somewhat different data sets with a, a fair amount of overlap. Um, but both the process of sort of seeing the other person's thought process going into this and then also combining the different data sets that we had, I think in the end made the paper much, much stronger than it would have been. And so I think, you know, it's one of those things where we could have panicked or we could have tried to race each other and see you know, who could have published their paper first to be the first person to use this discontinuity. But in the end, I think it probably worked out a lot better for both of us that we decided to combine. And now you know, we're working on a bunch of other projects together you know, using some of the data that we have. So I think it, you know, 
to, to, to grad students out there who, who may encounter this situation in the future, my personal perspective is I think collaboration oftentimes works better than competition, but you know you have to decide for yourself um, uh, you know, how, to, how to handle a situation like that. And then that's a great story for the discipline, you know, that we don't all have to compete with each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, I think it was a lot easier for us because we're both junior researchers. And so I think, you know, if you're working on something and then you find that a much more senior professor had been working on it, then it's a little bit tougher of a call from a strategic perspective. Because if you work together, then, you know, you're not going to get any of, the, any of the credit for it, uh, most likely. In this case, you know, we're both junior researchers. Like, I think it was clear, you know, We'd both come to this independently, and so you know it's the sort of thing where I think the incentives were very much aligned for us to do it. The other thing that was kind of reassuring, in a way, it's kind of reassuring because when you're working on research, especially empirical research, you always kind of have this nagging worry in the back of your head. You know, did I make a coding mistake? You know, will my results replicate? But here, we've both replicated each other's results, and we find the same thing. And so, it was in a way, very comforting to see that for the you know the. 50% of our papers that, you know, some amount of our papers that were overlapping, that we were getting the same things. So it's like, all right, I, th I, th I think we're right. You know, I think, I think we, that we found the same thing is, a, is good. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, I really like it, actually, yeah. Uh, I'm curious, actually, so uh, th this is a way where you might your co-author, clearly you were interested in the same thing, but yeah. is that how you usually approach, like, finding partners and co-authors for papers? Like, are you looking for some specific qualities, skill sets? Yeah, good question. I mean, so so for me, it's always been very idiosyncratic. So for me, it's actually almost always been cases where it's been people who are interested in working on the same topic. So so actually another case of uh, co-authorship that kind of happened in a very similar way is also kind of a, maybe a funny story. Uh, you can just cut this from the podcast if it's not a funny story. Um, was uh, So when I was on the job market, uh, so this this one project, I, you know, it was very preliminary at that point. So you're on the job market, you're interviewing, they're asking, okay, what other sort of stuff are you working on? So I started talking about this one project. And so, you know, during the interview, I saw two of the interviewers kind of exchange glances as I was talking about this one project. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder what that means. You know, you're sitting in the interview, you're nervous, you have no idea, you know, what interviewers are, are thinking about. Uh, but it turned out one of their graduate students was also working on that, that same, you know, basic idea. Uh, and so later that day, uh, they emailed me and then, you know, we decided to collaborate, started working together. Um, and then, you know, that became an incredibly fruitful partnership. So now we have, you know, three papers together and, you know, that's, that's worked out, I think, uh, really well. So, uh, so this is a project in the U.S., so it's looking at uh, consequences of incarceration. So that was looking at consequences of parental and sibling incarceration. And now we have some other follow-up work looking at uh, mortality consequences of incarceration, labor market consequences uh, of incarceration. And it was one of those things where, I, I mean, I personally feel lucky where we were both working in these, like, in different areas to see, like, you know, I was working in, in Pennsylvania. They were working in Ohio. My data didn't end up working out. Their data ended up working out. So I think I got kind of lucky that, you know, we decided to work together. But, you know, hopefully I had some value added beyond uh, just the data. And so, um, yeah, but that, that ended up also being a really uh, fruitful collaboration. So, I think there are really a lot of fun stories about finding co-authors. I, well, I, I don't know. Or, or just I'm very unsuccessful finding co-authors other ways. I don't, I don't know how other people do it. I mean, I guess, you know, more recent co-authorships, like some have just been with friends, you know, where we were interested in working together and started talking about projects. And so then that naturally, you know, kind of uh, ended up working out. I hear there's people out there who, you know, put together co-author teams by being, oh, you're the structural person. Oh, you're the data person. I have no idea how they do that. I'd, I'd love to do that one day. But for me, that's that's never been how it's worked. Yeah. Uh, I was also something uh, which is very tangential, but related is, so you have a lot of work on India. I saw on your CV that you, you know some Hindi. Yeah. 
Uh, how did that decision learned in the Kamba? I'm assuming you didn't grow up. No, no, that's definitely right. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that was a decision I made during grad school. So after undergraduate, I worked as an RP, as a RA for J-PAL South Asia in Delhi. And so something I'd always found really frustrating was that I had no grasp of Hindi. And so I felt like I got very good at interpreting body language and sort of like reading what pe- what I thought people were saying based on things like that, you know, knowing our survey instrument and, and trying to read people that way. But my linguistic knowledge was not basically non-existent. And so uh, during grad school, what I decided is I would take classes in Hindi. So I took five semesters of Hindi in grad school. And so that was actually something that one of my advisors had earlier told us, uh, well, I should maybe have been a little less specific about that. So someone had early, an earlier grad student in a cohort above me had been told that that wasn't a valuable skill to invest in. And so I actually didn't tell my advisors I was doing that. Um, But in the end, I think it was actually one of the most valuable things I did during grad school, both from a mental health perspective. It was like great to be not just working on math, but be able to learn, you know, something that I found personally very rewarding, uh, even though it was very time consuming, you know, having classes every day of the week uh, and, you know, on top of the the PhD coursework. Um, But then also for doing research later on and for doing field work, like there's no, I mean, my Hindi now is, very, very uh, out of shape just because I haven't used it. But then during my PhD, I spent probably, I don't know, somewhere over a year uh, in India. And a lot of it was in rural areas where, you know, I was completely operating Hindi because there was no one who's, uh, who's uh, fluent in English. Um, and there's no way I could have done some of the projects I ended up doing uh, unless I had had those linguistic skills. I, I think uh, it's, a, yeah, I think it was a, a very valuable um, a very valuable skill to pick up, though it's it's certainly one that has a, a lot of costs. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess that cost benefit trade off uh, is hard to make for a lot of people, yeah. especially when you're in grad school. But it yeah. seems like there's other benefits like when you said about mental health and things like that. Yeah, and I can totally relate on not wanting to do math all day. I mean, I, I mean, I also I think I took kind of a I think I took kind of a weird approach to grad school, which is like I kept taking classes even in third, fourth, and, and fifth year, including some outside of econ, just because I personally found that useful for kind of building out my mental framework of like how the world works, which I think is thinking about frameworks of how do you see how the world works is for me, at least personally has been helpful in thinking about research ideas. Um, Yeah. I, I now don't necessarily advise PhD students to do that because it can be a bit of a distraction, but for me personally, like, you know, my fifth year, which is not a year when most people are taking classes, like I took public finance and that was actually incredibly valuable for me. Uh, To be fair, I took it as an audit, not, not for credit, which I think was a, was a wise decision. So I I certainly wouldn't say that's generalizable advice, but, um, for me, at least, that was that was helpful. Makes yeah, a lot of sense. Uh, I'm curious, actually. I feel like there's a couple of themes here uh, about, and we talk about this in our class. You know, sort of smart opportunism, where you're taking, you made a bunch of, I would say, non-traditional, risky decisions on, you know, maybe some questions to work on, context to work on, learning a language. Uh, what is your framework when you when you're thinking about, you know, maybe like if this opportunity is worth investing time in, and like. Because ex ante, you don't know how it's going to work out. How do you think about that in terms of research? Yeah, so I think I think you're giving me a little more agency than I deserve credit for in some of these decisions. I mean, so in terms of like learning Hindi, like I knew that was that seemed like an. I, I guess my my mental framework of doing research is that um, for me personally, I think having like a lot of contextual knowledge is very valuable, and I felt that it was going to be hard for me to get the contextual knowledge that I felt like I needed to do good research projects on India unless I had some at least some linguistic skills and sort of the opportunities that that, that, that opened up. Unfortunately, then uh, during COVID, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, that meant that I couldn't do as much field work, and so I had to kind of pivot into admin data. But it still is quite useful to be, you know, when you're going through, you know, 
uh, Indian government websites, which are sometimes uh, only in Hindi, to be able to like at least you know figure out what's going on here, and um, so that that at least has been useful. Otherwise, uh, Google Translate has maybe made some of that uh, a little obsolete. Um, so I mean, I think in that case, that was a very conscious decision. Um, I think in terms of, I think I think a little bit less in terms of those larger strategic decisions now, because now I think I've kind of put myself on a little bit of a a path and sort of, sort of where I know where I'm no longer making as many of those kind of strategic investments, I would say, um, those larger ones where I'm sort of have specialized myself in a little bit of a way where I don't necessarily have as many of those big decisions to make, at least in the, in the short run. Um, I think something I usually, so I, I think something that is useful, especially for PhD students, especially like second or third year PhD students is um, being hard on yourself in terms of, not, not in terms of how you, you view yourself, but being hard on yourself in terms of, is this research idea good enough for me to work on? Where I think now something that I do is I think, you know, diff different people have different models of how they work on research projects. For me, I think I work on a smaller number of projects and then maybe tend to inv invest a little bit uh, more in those than if I worked in a larger portfolio. I think other people have made uh, opposite bets, which is uh, working on a larger number of projects, more of a venture capital model where you work on a lot of projects, 60% of them or however many of them are going to fail. But when you're working on a larger number of projects, then then that's going to work out. Um, so you know, different, I think different people have different models of how that works. For me, I think that there is, if you spend more time on a project, there is a higher probability that it'll work out or maybe you'll pivot and it'll turn into something else. And so. I think that's the strategic decision that I guess I've made, but I think both of these are very valid ways of doing research. You just have to kind of figure out what works the best for you. Um, but in terms of, I think I also tend to give myself a little bit of a high threshold for whether or not to work on a project, um, particularly you know, given uh, some projects that I've worked on for years and years, and now I find it painful to open up the do files every time I, I go back and, and work on them. And so trying to make sure I don't end up with as many of those projects, as well as, um, you know, a piece of advice that someone gave me when I was a PhD student that I think maybe is good advice, maybe not good advice, I'm not really sure, is uh, don't work on a project unless you think that it could be published in like a very top journal. Um, because the amount of time that it takes to publish an article in a less top journal is about the same amount of time, sometimes even more, because you have to submit it to many different rounds of journals. But the payoffs to publishing in economics are so incredibly nonlinear that this is potentially the right way to respond to incentives. I'm not sure that that's very good for science. I think from an individual perspective, that probably is a good strategy. Um, it's a little bit tricky because you can sort of end up in paralysis where then you're like, I never know whether a, a project is a good enough idea, something I've definitely experienced as you you know, do research more. I mean, this is certainly something I'm still learning how to do, but um, I think you get better at sort of killing ideas um, more quickly. Um, so I think in terms of the strategic decisions, a lot of what I'm doing now more is thinking, okay, um, does this policy, is this a project that I'd want to work on just because I would idiosyncratically enjoy working on this question or one that I think could be a good publication? I'm still pre-tenure now. Uh, hopefully eventually I'll get tenure, um, but I have to be a little bit strategic about that. Um, yeah. No, that's great. And actually, so it's something, you know, we comes up in our uh, conversation with advisors a lot where we try to fail quickly, right? Like you, don't, you want to have a portfolio, but also you don't want to spend too much time on projects, you know, because a lot of them would fail. So I, I thought it was really interesting. So you said you think a lot about what 
you want to invest your time to work on, but I'm sure there's some preliminary work required to make that decision. Yeah. So how do you, like, how do you fail quickly? How do you decide yes. this is going to start or this is going to require more time? Yes. So I think a lot of it is, is being hard on yourself in terms of not being like, oh, well, maybe if I collected this additional data, I can make this work or something like that. But moving as quickly as possible to a place in which you're able to at least basically evaluate, is this a good idea or not? And so one of these is thinking about the research question and thinking about how interesting is this research question. And so for me, the things that I tend to think about are, is this answering a puzzle to something that we don't know the answer to? And if so, is this something that is important? Where at least personally, the way that I define important is one, is this demonstrating a mechanism that we previously didn't know about? Um, two, is this um, addressing something, a question which is important for policy, either in the sense that it's affecting a large group of people in at least some small or medium way, or a small group of people in a really large way? Um, as well as thinking, you know, does this speak to theoretical models or theoretical debates um, in the literature? And kind of if I'm working on a research question that I don't think satisfies at least one of those things, then I'll, then I'll drop it. And at that point, if I get to a place where I'm, I think that the research question is interesting enough, then it's moving as quickly as possible to, to data and trying to think, is this actually feasible? And if I reach a point where I think, oh, this isn't feasible, or oh, this would be a lot of work to work on, then just dropping it and not feeling bad about it. And so, yeah, so I think that and for me, practically what that means is early in a project, investing a lot of, trying to invest a lot of time to see if it's going to work quickly. Um, and so... And then after that, um, you know, you know, try, trying to fail quickly in that way. So I think like, what's the minimum usable regression that you can get to that would answer your question of whether or not this is going to be a good project, and then uh, kind of going from there. Uh, but not not spending time like I need to collect the perfect data to evaluate this because, yeah, I mean, there's there's also different models I think of how people decide whether to work on probably which we can talk more about later, but. Um, yeah, I think if you're hard on yourself with the research question, in particular, I think as a, a younger graduate student, it's really hard to know, is this an, a good or an interesting research question? I think your advisors tend to be much better at that. Of course, sometimes they give you bad advice, but you know, I like to think now as someone who advises people, hopefully no, most of the time I'm giving good advice. We, we advice. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> that's a great framework to think about. I really like it. I think you said something which is key for me here, like don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of times we probably get attached to projects just because we have some cost, right? And yeah. even though we learn that we shouldn't think about them, we end up not doing yeah. that to our real life. Yeah, and something actually that I also see a lot of graduate students struggle with in terms of feeling good or bad about a project is they'll come up with an idea that's a really good idea, and then they'll find out that someone has already done it. And then they just feel bad about themselves, like, man, why didn't I come up with this earlier? But what you should really feel is you should feel great that you came up with an idea that's good enough that it was a research project that someone else did that was a good research project. And typically what I've seen, at least from our PhD students, is first they come up with great ideas that were a great idea in 1983. Then they come up with great ideas that were a great idea in 2006. Then they come up with a great idea that was just published in a paper last year. And that tends to be a little bit frustrating, but what this means is you're getting closer and closer to the research frontier. So rather than you know bemoaning those things, you should celebrate it because it means you're becoming better and better as a researcher. Yeah, that's some compelling uh, advice, and I yeah I love the way you sort of you know framed all of that because I think it comes up in three in our day to day life, but sometimes it's just hard to find structure or you know to see someone who's been through this and you know went through something similar. That's super useful. Uh, one of the last questions I guess I'd ask is you know where does the satisfaction in the profession come from? You I know again we talked about this. You have several different research questions, and you know and you also mentioned about sometimes there might be a trade off in your intrinsic motivation and the strategic 
think which is right to do. So how do you think about these things in terms of your research career? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if I can give grad students good advice on this, because I think I've done the opposite of what you're supposed to do in your career, which is that what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be, what you want on the job market is you want to be known as the X person, where you are the person who's going to be the world expert in X, where you know X is, is whatever. What I've done, I think, is do a bad job of that, where oftentimes I've been, one, pursuing questions that I think are personally I find interesting or I get excited about, um, and not worrying as much about being known as the as as person X. You know, I don't I don't have tenure, so you know maybe that, that may not be a very wise decision. But for me personally, that's kind of what motivates me. Where, you know, I've definitely worked on projects. I can think of one in the past where I just hated working on that project. It was, I think, it, it was a good idea. Um, you know, and but I just, I just really didn't, every day I had to open the do file, I was just like, I don't want to be working on this. And so um, we ended up you know, killing that project even though it was a good idea for reasons that aren't really that interesting. But um, yeah, that experience I think has also made me kind of realize, you know, you have to, it's not just about specializing necessarily, but it's also about doing what you find enjoyment in. And I'm very envious of the people who get excitement from working in the same area on different projects that are very related to each other. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be within my chemistry. And so, you know, that's just how I've had to had to do things and had to work. We'll see if that if that pays off. Uh, but uh, for me, at least, that's um, definitely a big part of the motivation is actually like fundamentally wanting to know what the answer is to the questions that I'm looking at. But I think another thing too, like in terms of motivation, which as a PhD student, at least for me personally, would often, you know, ebb and flow. Um, I think having co-authors who you actually like working with is is probably one of the best determinants of how much you're going to enjoy working at a pro- on a project. And so, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've had a lot of co-authors who I just really enjoy as people. And so, I think that makes it a lot easier to work on projects, even when. You're frustrated with them. You still know, oh, we're still going to have our weekly call and we're going to, you know, the first five or 10 minutes, we're just going to talk about, you know, life and things. And then we'll get to the project and at least having that to look forward to even when the when the project is frustrating. Yeah, no, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, that's great. Uh, I mean, we really enjoy your research, both of us. I know we've, like, your papers are assigned in class readings and stuff. Oh. So you've, you've done really good research and it's really exciting. And I hope to see more stuff from you. And thanks a lot. You've been so gracious and open and, you know, really enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, good luck. Yeah, thanks. It's been great talking to you as well. Though I think that maybe the reason that your papers are assigned in my classes is you're being taught by my co-authors. And so <laughs> rather than reflecting the quality of the paper, I think that reflects who my co-authors are. But you're very nice. You're very kind to say uh, that. Thank you. Yeah, good mark of you know having good co-authors yeah yeah yeah, people who promote your work among phd students yeah thanks a lot thank you very nice